I would say ruminant poo that's drug-free is the, I would say, one of the most important substances on Earth. And I would say dung beetles are as equally as important to the future of mankind as like bees, basically. That's Matt Chatfield, a sheep farmer in Cornwall who you might remember from episode two. As well as being incredibly passionate about the flavour of mutton, Matt is a great believer in farming methods that work in harmony with nature, which encourage healthy soils. That, Matt tells me, is the root out of the mess that we're in. My name is Lewis Bassett, and you're listening to The Full English. In this episode, we'll be looking at how industrial agriculture changed how food is produced and consumed in England. Given the negative consequences of factory farming for climate change and for the health of our soils, plants and animals, are ecological farming techniques the solution? Should the world's growing population eat less meat, or might modern processed foods play an important role in lowering meat-related greenhouse gas emissions? We'll be looking at these global questions and much more in this episode four of The Full English on Factory Farms. If you go back to the sort of mid-1800s, just about everybody in the country was attached to the bread-making process in some way, whether you owned a mill, whether you were the farmer growing the wheat, whether you were doing the the milling, and um, it was just a part of everyday life. This is Lucy Williamson, a nutritionist and advocate for good gut health. She told me how the white flour that goes into a supermarket loaf of bread is so heavily processed that all that remains of the wheat is the starch. This gives modern bread its uniformity and helps improve its shelf life. The nutrients that are lost in that refinement process are often added back in, but we don't know for sure that they are as easily absorbed by the body in this way. The fibre is also lost. The yeast that is added is homogenous, which can cause intolerance, and our gut processes the starch and white bread very quickly, meaning our hunger and energy levels spike and dip. The same kinds of processing happens with other foods as well. As a nutritionist and a sort of health professional, we're definitely trying to encourage people to move away from processed foods. What that industrialization has done is it's, it's enabled um, food to be produced in vast quantity and it's let go of quality. That at the end of the day, that's how we sum it up. There is a, a quality quantity trade-off. This is the historian David Edgerton. There's a move to transform British agriculture through investment, through um, uh, subsidies, through the, the more general encouragement of, of, of national production, because it's not, it's not confined to, to agriculture. And it's a, it's a programme which has an extraordinary success. Uh, so by the 1970s, 80s, uh, the 80s really, uh, the United Kingdom becomes essentially self-sufficient in food, something like 96% self-sufficiency in things like wheat, beef, lamb, pork, uh, vegetables, lo- local local fruit. That is an extraordinary transformation. It, it takes the United Kingdom back uh, to where it had been in the, in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century. That means that for the first time in many generations, the food that British people eat is grown in the United Kingdom. But it's industrialised production at this point, as in it's being grown with modern techniques, high yields, intensive farming, sophisticated machines, that kind of thing. Exactly. The extent of transformation of the countryside uh, is really extraordinary. The rate of labour productivity increase is much greater than in industry. So we have an increases in output. The yields uh, per acre or hectare go up very radically. The number of uh, animals uh, goes up 
um, um, the peak for for sheep and uh, and cows comes in the 1970s and, and 1980s. So yes, uh, agriculture is uh, uh, intensified to 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 an, to an extraordinary uh, degree. During the Second World War, essential imports to Britain, including food, were threatened by a Nazi blockade. So by 1945, and as the Cold War dragged on, politicians sought to increase the UK's self-sufficiency in food. But that period of self-reliance began to decline from the 1990s. What happened since is that the economy is opened up. Uh, it's opened up first to Europe and then uh, through Europe to the world at, uh, at large. And that, again, has profound consequences for our everyday life. And we no longer expect to drive a British-made car or to use a British-made telephone or for our furniture or our floor coverings or our curtains to be British-made. Um, I mean, it, it's it's hard for uh, the recent generations to understand that in, in the 1970s and, 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 and earlier, this was the expectation. It was really rather uh, surprising to see manufactured goods from other parts of the world. As we discussed in episode one, the combination of free trade and industrialised food production has meant that England hasn't had a particularly strong agricultural tradition for some 150 years. That doesn't mean we've always lacked food, though. The government's focus on increasing food output after the war, combined with investments in public health, had a dramatic positive impact on public nutrition, captured in the data showing growing average height rates, for example. After all, quantity is a kind of quality. But this industrial approach to food has had some serious costs as well. Certainly within agriculture, what we strived to do was to maximise yield at all cost and to specialise farming. This is Liz Bowles, the Associate Director for Farming at the Soil Association. Nothing comes without a quid pro quo. Uh, and certainly that availability of calories through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s has driven population increase and it's reduced the incidence of famine. But it's come with those unintended consequences for biodiversity, for soil and for water and for air. And I think now, now we understand those consequences. We also know that given the precarious situation of the planet now, we have to make changes in order to meet the, the nature and the climate crises we face. So, are ecological farming methods the answer? This is Matt Chatfield again, talking about how his granddad's generation farmed. It was after the war, which the chemicals were available because we were basically building ammunition, and they really discovered that like nitrogen, you know, as a chemical, actually stimulated photosynthesis and made plants grow. So basically what happened was my granddad would have been doing a mixed farm. He would have had a few, like, you know, red rubies, he would have had sheep, he'd have had, you know, pretty mixed rotation. But then obviously the government said, right, we need to feed the nation. In case we have a war, we need to feed everyone. The best way to do it is plough up all your land, plant ryegrass that grows really quickly if you add chemical fertiliser, plough it and then drain all your fields. So you put drains underneath so all the water runs off. So basically he did that. And it meant that he was able to grow a lot of grass very quickly um, and produce a lot of milk for the area. But it just meant he was continually having to build ditches to drain the water. And it basically, over time, it actually destroyed our soil. As soon as you put a fertiliser or chemicals on soil, you're basically killing all the microorganisms at work. That's, you know, particularly chemical fertiliser. And also, if you're using pesticides or fungicides, they're even worse because the pests are vital, but fungus is the thing, you know, that's keeping it going. By the time Matt inherited his granddad's farm, his soils were entirely dependent on chemical inputs. As a result, 
Matt's adopted an approach to farming called regenerative agriculture. To improve soil, you need ruminants. And ruminant poo, you need ruminants that are as chemical-free as possible. And then you start realising that it's poo that starts kickstarts the whole system. So Regen Ag, what you're trying to do is you're trying to feed the microorganisms in the soil and you feed them by using carbon and you get carbon either from carbon dioxide or from plants that get trampled down and then worms come up and grab them. And it's as simple as that, really. Matt's system basically uses sheep to regenerate his soils by eating grass and shitting out nutrients that the sheep eventually compact into the earth. The product is both incredible tasting mutton and improved biodiversity that, Matt says, starts with healthier soils. To farm agroecologically means that you're farming in tune with nature, not fighting it all the time. I'm thinking as a farmer all the time about the habitat and the food availability for everything that would like to call my farm home. I think in the past, we haven't thought like that. We've just thought about the crops and the livestock we're producing and making sure they're looked after, but we haven't thought about everything else, the the birds, the wildlife, um, vertebrates, insects, flowers, uh, soil, soil microbiota, all of those need to exist in order to produce a functioning ecosystem. We're talking about much more complex rotations, mixed farming, not using artificial fertilizers, using natural N, not using agrochemical and anything like as much, and livestock production based predominantly on forage rather than intensive livestock being fed on cereals and proteins. This all sounds fantastic, but I can't be the only person left wondering if this ecological approach to food production can actually feed a growing population. Referring to evidence that the Soil Association has published, Liz says that it can, but only if we make changes to our eating habits. Yeah, I mean, it's the one thing that people always ask me this, but surely, Liz, you, you can't feed the world if you follow organic farming practices. So I, my response to this is always that actually we can't afford not to, simply because unless we can get to net zero in agriculture, then as well as properly addressing the nature and soil crises that we're not going to combat climate change. But it it won't come, though, without some changes to how we live. When it comes to our food, we're going to have to minimise our food waste as much as possible. And yes, we will need to be eating more fruit and vegetables and less meat and dairy from intensively farmed systems. So that there is is some behaviour changes that are needed in order that agroecology can feed everybody. But it's certainly possible given those two caveats. Of course, it's not only the Soil Association who are arguing for us to change how we eat. Hi, I'm Michael Clark. I'm a researcher based at the University of Oxford and focus on researching the impact that dietary choices have on the environment and human health. Michael and his colleagues recently published a study that looked at what we should eat for public and planetary health. The three main findings are one, very generally, the healthiest foods are also often among the most environmentally sustainable. The second is that the converse of that is that the least environmentally sustainable foods are also often the least healthy. And then the third is that there's a general relationship across the foods that we examine that healthier foods are often more environmentally sustainable than less healthy foods. At its most straightforward, Michael's research suggests that we should eat less animals and more plants. So things like nuts, whole grain cereals, legumes, fruits, and vegetables. They have very low environmental impacts. They're 
increasing consumption of them seems to be associated with reduced risk of diet-related diseases. So again, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and death. And then at the very high end, you have red and processed red meat. So things like beef, pork, mutton, lamb, and then processed meats would be things like beef, turkey, bacon, and so on. Those are associated with a increased risk of death, but also increased risk of things like cancer and diabetes and heart disease and stroke. And they also have environmental impacts that in many cases are about 50 to 100 times higher than the environmental impacts of plant-based foods. Although this is the finding of his research, Michael doesn't think that everyone being vegan is a realistic answer. And in some cases, like Matt Chatfield's farm, animal agriculture can even be part of the solution. But overall, our current consumption of meat and dairy just isn't sustainable. It needs to fall significantly if we want to lower greenhouse gas emissions, which is a problem because globally, demand for meat is set to increase. I think right now we, we need basically three Earths for what we consume. Right now we've got seven and a half billion people. We're looking at about 10 billion people at some point in the century. And of course, the average human consumption hopefully will go up because right now, you know, three, four, four and a half billion people aren't actually eating enough calories at the moment. My name is Aaron Bastani. I'm the co-founder of Navarra Media, where I'm still uh, a presenter. Uh, I'm also the author of Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which talks about the interface between technology and politics and how things could change quite significantly over the rest of this century. I think, you know, if you're, if you're saying these 10 billion people just need to behave like this and everything will be fine, I don't think you're engaging with reality. I think you have a strange theory of change. I mean, clearly, people need to eat more, eat more vegetables. Clearly, we, we want to have a diet that's lower in saturated fat and so on. But in many countries, again, particularly in the global south, sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, South Asia, there's rising demand for these products. You know, there's not less demand for these products. So the idea that even keeping demand stable, right, for, for, for dairy, for meat, for eggs, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a hugely ambitious idea. Uh, so the idea that, oh, we're just going to get rid of it, and we're going to say to uh, aspirational people in Shenzhen and Mumbai and, and uh, you know, Jakarta, oh, sorry, I know you've been seeing images in the West of people eating, you know, Happy Meals and Big Macs for the last hundred years, but you don't get to do that now. We've decided as a society. I think that's ridiculous. Aaron says that it's not just hypocritical to tell people in poorer nations that they can't eat more meat and dairy, but this appeal to people's morality is simply not going to achieve results within the time frame that we need them. People today don't eat meat because of how it's produced. They eat it in spite of how it's produced. I know nobody sits down to a meal and says, I really want to eat this meat because I really want this animal to have been raised and slaughtered. They eat meat because it, it tastes good and, it, and it's a, it's a protein-rich option that can feed themselves and their families. My name is Ellie Weldon. I'm a policy manager at the Good Food Institute. Our current food system is heavily reliant on industrial animal agriculture just purely to meet the amount of demand we have today. And in the future, that demand is also set to increase substantially. So we're predicted to go up by 70% demand potentially between now and 2050. So in terms of the, the environmental impacts of uh, animal agriculture, I mean, just taking greenhouse gas emissions, for example, I mean, the University of Oxford a few months ago released a report that found essentially even if we just cut out fossil fuels entirely from our, our energy system, we simply cannot meet our Paris uh, climate agreement targets without looking at our current food system. So if we're going to tackle the, um, the climate emergency at the, at the scale and at the speed necessary, we basically can't rely on dietary change alone. So in other words, we can't just rely on convincing people at an individual level to 
to give up the food that they clearly want to eat. That's why people like Aaron and Ellie advocate for cultivated meat, also known as cellular agriculture, which is essentially creating the experience of meat without the use of animals. But essentially, cultivated meat is exactly the same as the, the conventional beef, pork, chicken and seafood that we enjoy eating today. But instead of raising and slaughtering animals to get that meat, you essentially grow it directly from cells. And the way that works in practice, so cellular agriculture basically involves taking a small sample of cells from an animal and growing them in what's known as a cultivator, which is essentially a large tank. It looks a lot like a beer brewery. And inside the cultivator, that essentially facilitates all the same natural biological processes that happen inside an animal. So you essentially provide that small sample of cells with the, the warmth and all the nutrients they need. Um, and then they transform into kind of the, the cells of, of meat, so water, proteins, carbohydrates, fats and vitamins and minerals. And the result after you go through that process is essentially genuine animal meat, um, it's identically uh, identical in taste to conventional produ conventionally produced meat, but it's made in this much more sustainable and uh, overall kind of safer way. But it's important to say, with cellular agriculture, there are two ways of fabricating these these proteins, which are which resemble animal proteins. The first is you edit essentially a vegetable protein to more closely imitate an animal protein. So you're you're editing, for instance, the proteins in yellow split peas, I think it is, for the Just Egg product. Um, and you grow that with a, a genetically modified yeast. And that is in no way an animal an animal protein, but it, it resembles the, the texture, the flavor of eggs. With the Impossible Burger, it's quite similar. They effectively get this thing called heme, which gives a burger its kind of bloody irony flavor. And they do something similar there. But with some of the products that you know we're going to see over the next year two years coming to, to mass market you know chicken nuggets beef burgers those actual meat proteins say from um just chicken for instance so that the just egg product uses the vegetable proteins process just chicken is using a, a process whereby you actually grow meat it's it's quite literally meat without animals it's exactly the same you know chicken burger or minced beef burger but without the animal, without the animal suffering. If many of us already eat meat while knowing the animal came from a horrific factory farm, then there's no reason to think that meat grown in a large vat of water should be something of putting. But, I asked Aaron, can part of the answer to climate change really be something that feels so distinctly unnatural? What is natural, you know? As a species, Homo sapiens, there were, there were people with brains that could more or less think like ours in the African savannah around 400,000 years ago. You know, we have a bunch of technologies like fire in the meantime, but actually the human beings that you and I know, the ones that engage in agriculture, produce surplus, have cities, written language, numeracy, etc. That's all the last 12,000 years. And so a lot of the foodstuffs that we think are natural have emerged since then. So you look at, for instance, wheat, um, you look at uh, barley, you look at chickpeas. Another example is bananas. You know, I don't think, I mean, I... I Somebody, somebody will be listening to this and they'll probably be able to phrase it better. But basically, you know, but bananas, without human intervention, bananas can't sort of reproduce, right? You know, th this is a crop, I think it was initially from Southeast Asia. And it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, you know, it's a very unnatural thing, a banana. It hasn't got any seeds. When you open a banana, you know, where are the seeds? Where is this coming from? It's a completely <laughs> unnatural kind of thing. Equally, carrots. You know, we have orange carrots. They've only been orange since I think about the 16th, 17th century. People used to to cultivate carrots actually for the for the leaves, 
not for the not for the not for the the root vegetable. So this thing about oh it's natural, it's unnatural. You know, carrots aren't natural, wheat's not natural, bananas aren't natural. So you know, where where would you like to end this? Are we gonna are we gonna say I'm only gonna eat? And you do get some people like this, right? They'll say I'm only gonna eat einkorn wheat or spelt. <laughs> Uh, whatever it's still not quote unquote natural you know because th- this, this this stuff has been has been interbred by you know by neolithic humans and even pre-neolithic humans i think probably started experimenting with it so yeah what is natural well ultimately humans have been intervening in the natural environment and 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 and, and the food economy for tens of thousands of years this is just doing it far more efficiently and i think actually more importantly in a world where we have to decarbonize by 2050, 2060, you know, this is, a, this is a point of political urgency. Changing the way we consume meat is not only a question of technology and consumer adoption. Aaron explains that if we want an equitable transition to sustainable food sources, who owns the product and what they charge for it really matters. Could we have global meat production, which means we live within the planet's biocapacity? Yes. Could that be led by capitalism? Plausibly. Does that mean we would solve global hunger? No. That's a political question. That's a question of social relations. Um, and so, yeah, technology, will it save us? Sort of. Yeah? But it, it's, who's it going to save is the big question. We're over halfway through our first series of the Full English Podcast, and we've already opened up so many questions around food, politics, history, and identity. So we're just getting started. If you like the show and you want it to continue, then head over to patreon.com forward slash full English and make a regular donation. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash full English. It's really simple. Just sign up for a small monthly donation and we'll make more episodes. Now back to the show. While there's a lot of hype and a lot of money orbiting cellular agriculture companies in Silicon Valley in the US, alternative proteins are not exactly new. Tofu and seitan have been eaten by some meat-avoidant Buddhists in China for centuries. Medieval chefs in England made eggs out of almonds and bacon out of salmon during Lent, a subject which deserves its own episode. When I was growing up, corn in the form of pies and ready meals often appeared at my family's dinner table, particularly since my mum and dad are vegetarian. In fact, originating in England, corn is the industry leader for meat alternatives. So I'm Tess Kelly. I'm a farmer's daughter, a so committed vegetarian, and I'm sustainable development manager at Corn Foods. It actually arose um, out of you know a real food crisis in the 1960s. You know there was a real concern around providing the right amount of food for people. Corn's story begins at the start of the Cold War, the period in which the British government was seeking to ensure that the UK had a domestic source of food for the first time in a hundred years. And globally, there were huge concerns about food security as well. This context helped give birth to corn. There was a philanthropist and uh, filmmaker called Lord J. Arthur Rank. Um, You may have seen some of um, the old black and white films with a man striking a gong. uh, And that was the the Rank company that produced the films. But he was a really fascinating character, actually. And, you know, really engaged with this this crisis of food and wanted to put some of his um, investment into finding a new way to produce food, finding a new source, particularly of protein. At the time... um, Carbohydrate was really plentiful. You know, we had, you know, a lot of starchy vegetables, a lot of crops were available, but the protein question was still really unanswered. So he uh, set on an incredible mission, really, to uh, set his scientists out to find the first new food since the potato.
potato, or so the legend goes. Arthur Rank's scientists went out in search of a microorganism that could be grown at scale. They took over 3,000 soil samples from across England. The one they eventually began to develop came from a compost heap in Buckinghamshire. As the development took place, it was discovered that we could feed it with a relatively small amount of energy. It could be grown at scale. And more importantly, it had some of the fundamental qualities that that we were looking for. It was really high in protein and a great quality source of protein. But most importantly, it could replicate and imitate the taste and the texture. Um, And, um, you know, all of those aspects are the commonly eaten meat proteins um, that we were looking for. Making corn requires two 50-foot-high tanks. The microorganism is fed in one tank and as it grows, it floats up and into the other tank from where it's harvested and processed in order to create the textures and flavours of the end product. Arthur Rank's initial research was sold to a huge company called Imperial Chemical Industries who manufactured a large number of products from fertilisers to explosives. It then took over 20 years for the first corn product to come to market in 1985. So the first product was launched in Sainsbury's actually and was a, a, a meat alternative vegetarian pie. And from there, we developed our kind of core products that most people will be familiar with in terms of our mints, our pieces, and the rest is history. And now we have everything to your your midday um, nuggets, um, to escalops and and all the rest of it. As with many other firms in Britain's economy, corn has since been globalised, now being owned by a parent company in the Philippines and listed on the Philippine Stock Exchange. Recently, corn estimated has served more than a billion portions of its product, but the company has incredibly ambitious plans to expand. By 2032, corn wants to be serving 8 billion portions a year. While the product was developed to tackle a perceived protein shortage, it was initially marketed as a product for vegetarians. But now, as Tess explains, corn wants to be seen as a healthy and sustainable option for everyone. We did some interesting comparison statistics a couple of years ago. So if you took all of our um, microprotein that's produced from our fermenters and turn that into chicken products, for example. If that was to be actual chickens, it would equate to roughly 33 million chickens worth of protein, which I just find absolutely astonishing. And again, when you think about the, you know, the energy and the food and the time that it takes to grow a, a cow or a chicken or you know an animal and then convert that into protein compared to the efficiency of our process to get you know the same sort of quality of a product um, out the end I just find that absolutely astonishing. If alternative proteins like corn achieve their goals the net result in terms of the climate is probably a benefit to us all. To achieve that corn and the newer cultivated meat companies following in its wake have had to challenge the idea that their products are exclusively for vegetarians. Understanding the extent to which products like corn will play a role in a sustainable food system requires a shift in our attitudes towards factory foods in general. Just as some types of fresh food are often associated with being elitist in England, foods made with modern processes are often looked down upon. We've become obsessed with avocado in this country and I've been trying to figure out why we are so obsessed with it being middle class. This is Penn Volga. The Metro newspaper had this huge headline about how avocado hand, which is when you stab yourself because you've tried to get the stone out of the avocado with a knife and you've been a bit over-enthusiastic and you end up at A&E with this thing called avocado hand. And why is that the most middle-class in- injury ever? And, you know, why are people so ex- exercised about millennials spending all their money on avocado toast, you know, when they could be saving for a home or whatever it is, you know, like... 
a home is more affordable than avocado toast. I sort of tracked it back to this campaign that the Avocado Growers Association of California started, which was to really position the avocado as a a healthy Mediterranean style, because obviously it doesn't come from Mediterranean, it comes from Mexico and South America, Um, Californian sort of superfood. And what was interesting was that they expunge all the references to Mexico and South America on their site. They just don't, they just pretend it's a Californian thing. It, it gets picked up by, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and the kind of, you know, healthy eaters and all the rest of it. And it just fits right into this kind of map that we've made for ourselves in Britain of, you know, foods being li- related to class. And as soon as we have a, a food that comes along and seems to be a middle class thing, we're completely delighted. We have a place for it. We have a slot for it. We know how to understand it. Avocados, people love them, loads of people buy them. And did you know the biggest and most common reason for a cut across the palm is avocados? You can only eat it in a certain way. You can only eat it fresh. You can't freeze it. You can't tin it. You can't dehydrate it. And and so it's healthy and it's got to be eaten fresh. And, And those two words, kind of healthy and fresh, we've decided that those go with a certain kind of food that a certain kind of, you know, population eats. Penn is the author of a book called Scoff. She argues that much of the time, what we eat isn't determined by how it tastes or whether a food is sustainable or healthy, but it's determined by where it fits in our preconceived ideas of class. This cultural framework often means that processed food is seen as inferior. I think historically we've focused on the things which are not to do as a food. We've focused on judging each other by what we eat. We've focused on, and so we say, I eat lovely white, freshly made sourdough bread, therefore I'm this kind of person, and you eat Mother's Pride, therefore you're that kind of person. We might look at each other's cupboards or shopping baskets and go, okay, you've got this kind of marmalade, you've got this kind of tea, you've got this kind of sweets, you know, you've got, and making judgments about people. So we've done that. Historically, we've talked quite a lot about what's appropriate for different people at different times. So in the mid 18th century, for example, um, there was a lot said to the working classes or the agricultural classes about how it wasn't appropriate for them to drink tea or try and eat white bread. Um, because it wasn't a requirement of their station or their kind of, in terms of bread, you know, f- physiologically robust peasant types had robust peasant sort of, de- uh, you know, digestions and could take wholemeal bread and therefore they shouldn't eat white, for example. And so food has there been used to distinguish people, to identify the individual as part of a group and therefore to separate them from other people. And so we've ended up with this kind of two-tier system, I think, where you have on the one hand, mass-produced, hyper-processed food. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, the you'll recognise the vocabulary, the, you know, the farmer's market, the local, the organic, and all the rest of it. And this is the thing. The English have a habit of telling people who they consider inferior exactly how to behave, both globally and domestically. Because in our class-obsessed society, what you eat is meant to signify your social status. This becomes a problem if we want to create a sustainable food system, since on the one hand, it's unrealistic to expect people to give up meat on the basis of moral appeals from those who claim to know better, while on the other hand, welcoming meat alternatives as part of the answer to environmental issues will be limited when those products are read in class terms as a type of processed convenience food. It's very easy to be food snobby and um, 
middle class about convenience foods, but for many, many people, it's incredibly important. This is the chef and restaurateur, Tom Kerridge. I grew up, it was a single parent family, so I grew up in Gloucester, myself and my brother and my mum, who had two jobs, that was it. So we grew up with very little in the way of money and disposable income and that, and cooking really wasn't, uh, it was a thing that I did as a, we we were known then as latchkey kids, so that you'd let yourself in and cook tea for my brother. Uh, yeah, I'd get it in the evenings, big things like um, fish finger sandwiches, Finder's crispy pancakes, those sort of things. So it's like tin, <laughs> tins of ravioli, uh, oxtail soup, you know, <laughs> just that, like that child of the 80s. I mean, it's, it's very easy to talk about it in a bad way. Like you can say it's processed food, it's really poor ingredients, it's cheap, it's whatever. However, at that point, it was necessity. It was food that works. It was food that it, it meant that from my mum's point of view, she knew that 13 or 14 year old could light the grill and grill some fish fingers or turn the oven on and you know, heat some stuff up, bird's eye potato waffles or whatever else, and ensure tins of baked beans, ensure that kids, you know, were eating something warm. That it, it would be lovely if everybody had the time and the money to cook lots of fresh ingredients and always be able to do it. But the reality of life is something that's very, very different, I think, to the, rea- to the perceived perception of what should be going on in this kind of like make-believe world that it, it, I think politicians and uh, dietitians and, you know, try to create that everybody should be in. The reality is that people's lives are very different to that. While the development of industrial agriculture successfully fed a growing population in Britain, it's had negative consequences as well, including being an important contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. But that doesn't mean that ecologically produced food, combined with behavioural change, is the only solution. It might sound ironic, but factory foods, like corn, are needed to tackle issues caused by industrial agriculture. While it's hypocritical for wealthy individuals and wealthy countries to ask aspirational people to eat less meat, It's also unrealistic to expect moral appeals to achieve meaningful results in the shortest time possible. That means creating a sustainable food system will require both regenerative agriculture from ecologically conscious farmers like Matt Chatfield and factory foods like corn and cultivated meat. But to recognise that means challenging the binary between natural and unnatural foods and their associated social status. Or, as Penn Volga puts it, we need to stop scoffing at what other people scoff. My name is Lewis Bassett, and you've been listening to The Full English. We've opened a huge can of worms in this episode concerning England's intimate relationship with processed foods, whether food really does tell us something about a person's class and what class means in England today. We're going to cover some of these topics in episode five, but to really get into them, it's going to require separate episodes. And so if you want that to happen, then please support the show. You can sign up for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash full English. By signing up, you can get access to exclusive content such as interviews and recipes, including some vegan ones. You can follow The Full English on Twitter and Instagram at fullengpod. Music for the show is provided by Forrest DLG. You can find him on Twitter and Insta at Forrest DLG. Thanks, as always, to our guests in this episode. You can find details about them and their work in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>